Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. And behind the scenes, so is Charlotte Pardy, our stalwart producer who's been gallivanting. And we're very pleased to have her back. Welcome back, Charlotte, from behind the screen. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, Alex. How are you? Yes, I'm very well. I'm preparing to start yet more gallivanting. I'm off to the Cambridge Literary Festival at the weekend and it betokens a sort of whole slew of events over the next few weeks. I think I'll probably be seeing you at the Hay Festival, won't I? Yes, that will be fun at the Hay Festival. That'll be exciting. And in fact, we are going to see each other and talk to someone this week, but should we keep it an exciting secret for next week? Yeah. We're going to talk to an exciting novelist. Alex is racking her brains now while she tries really to... Really <laughs> exciting. I... I never forget a thing. Really exciting. We have a novelist who's absolutely, her book is her book there. That's a clue for you all. Her book is really in the news. It's just been released. She's making a trip to the UK. There's another clue. And we are going to go and meet her. And that will be the treat for next week's podcast. It's been a busy, busy week in the world of books, hasn't it? The best of young British novelists, the Granter list is out. Did you have any instant reaction to it Lucy my instant reaction to it was that I must ask Alex what her reaction to it is that's my, that's my my but I to be honest I wasn't terribly familiar with that many of them and uh no so you have to tell me what your reaction was I've read hardly any of them I'm afraid well I don't think you'd be entirely alone because it's definitely a list that celebrates newness and I think a lot of commentators have been making that point that even in years gone past a lot of the names on lists had already published several books and this is this is not quite the same so there's I mean Mm. there are people who we are very familiar with their names Eleanor Catton is one of them for example oh yes yes of course yeah she's very well established yeah and Sarah Baum now both of those writers are interesting because Sarah Baum is thought of as an Irish novelist. She certainly lives in Ireland and she, however, has a British passport, was born in the UK. Eleanor Catton, a New Zealand writer, now lives in Cambridge. So the rules kind of and the criteria have kind of blossomed, shall we say, to try and... (laughs) Blossomed is a nice way of saying it. Yeah, that is a nice way. I was very pleased to see Derek Awusu on the list, Ellie Williams, who's a real favourite writer of mine. Oh, yes, I have read her book. Yes, really good. Yeah, it's just a really 
excellent and interesting writer. Isabella Hamad was somebody who I've just been hearing the most wonderful things about her new novel. And then writers who we know as yet very little about, like, for example, Kay Patrick. So I'd be delighted to read their book. So always interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah. And also there's there's always that thing, which is quite fun to do, is look back at the list from other years and say, oh, look, you know, they were there and, you know, some of them are very famous and some of them not so much and sort of see how people have fared. Not that it's all about lists or awards or anything like that. Or indeed kind of productivity. I mean, no, you know, when I not. was on the panel 20 years ago, and again, another thing was different than you could be a repeat novelist. So I think we had A.L. Kennedy had been on the previous list and was on it again. We also selected Sadie Smith, who then appeared 10 years later. But I think they've done away with that. And again, that idea of prizing newness and freshness. As I said, you can't have a second go. But but Rachel Cusk, who was who was on the list that I was part of selecting, was a judge this year. So as was Helen Oyeyemi again herself, an alumna. So yeah, interesting stuff. Mm. There's another writer that people might have heard of who is sort of celebrating a bit this week on account of it's his birthday this week, I think. I mean, maybe his birthday. Good old William Shakespeare. He always makes the list. He always makes the list. <laughs> We've got a couple of big pieces about him this week. And one of them I was really interested to see is one of them is a review of a book called The Invention of Shakespeare. I think kind of about how we created him, the difference between the text and the play, all those kind of interesting things. But the one thing that leapt out on me was that the two Shakespeare plays, I don't know if you saw this, Alex, but if you didn't, which do you think were the most popular plays on stage of his in Shakespeare's lifetime? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm going to go The Merry Wives of Windsor. Am I right? I'm afraid not. I just think you couldn't possibly guess it, actually. The what is it, Cymbeline? On stage. Is it oh, Henry V? It's Titus Andronicus. Oh, come on. <laughs> and Pericles. Imagine that, that Titus Andronicus is like, so everyone's like, yeah, that was great. So bloodthirsty. Put yeah. them in a pie. People just, just shouting, <laughs> put them in a pie at the stage. <laughs> Lord. Isn't that crazy? And Pericles. So... That's one thing that leapt out at me. There's lots of other great things in the paper this week as well about Shakespeare. But that that one, that's a bit of an eye opener, isn't it? I've also been listening to a sort of, this is Shakespeare adjacent, shall we say. I've been listening to various reviews and reading various reviews of Maggie O'Farnell's Hamnet, which is on stage at the RSC, isn't it, in Stratford? It is, and we're, we're going to have a, a brilliant review of it next week. We're doing a lot of promising for next week, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we really we are. are. It's all going to happen. But what about this week? Well, coming up on this week's show, Emily Bourne joins us to look at the impact of the welfare state on generations of women. And a new film goes in search of the elusive Patricia Highsmith's private life. But first, it's 75 years since the birth of the NHS and its presence in our lives has become so ingrained that during the COVID lockdowns, we were called upon to protect it by changing our behaviour almost as though it were a person rather than an organisation. Together with the welfare state, the NHS's principles of inclusion and care have shaped modern Britain and threats to their continued existence or ability to function are seen as threats to the well-being of the citizenry. Two new books examine this phenomenon through a variety of lenses and Emily Bourne has reviewed them in this week's paper. We're delighted that she's joining us now. Welcome, Emily. Thanks very much for having me. To begin with, we should say that this is your expertise, your area of expertise. 
in the sense that you're a historian of modern British life and also of care in particular, aren't you? Yes, I work on the history of childhood. My previous book was on the history of humanitarianism, and I'm now kind of looking at ideas around the care of children and also how that connects to the lives of women in modern Britain. And that's really one of the key focuses of both these books, but I guess particularly the first one. The first book is Eve Worth's The Welfare State Generation, and its subtitle gives us a clue as to its particular focus, Women, Agency and Class Since 1945. So as I understand it, Eve Worth interviewed women born between 1938 and 1952 in London and Sheffield. So she selected a group that, that would have this sort of foundational experience of the NHS, I guess. Is that right? Yes. And one of the themes that comes out in the sort of early section of the interview, so she talks to women from this generation that she calls the welfare state generation about their childhood. She follows them through their schooling, through their professional lives and into retirement. And one of the things that's so sort of striking about the book and so unusual is that she does these sort of life cycle interviews she's interested in the way they narrate their life with the welfare state and how much they understand themselves to be products of that and so many of the of the women in the book narrate their birth in relationship to the birth of the NHS whether they were born in 1948 or you know 1940 or 1952 they all have this really keen sense of of where they fell relative to the NHS. And, you know, there's one of the women says, you know, my brother was free. He was born in 1948, but I cost two and sixpence because she was born a couple of years earlier. It really shapes the way that they see themselves, their space in society, and gives them a sense of self-confidence and importance. And they then go on, many of them in their lives, not just to be kind of children of the welfare state, but also employees of the welfare state. And, And that's really what Worth is the most interested in, actually, is is in the welfare state as an employer of women, not just a kind of enabler of women. She's interested in how, actually kind of unexpectedly, because the welfare state is kind of an apparatus of care, its predominant group of employees are, are women, and how profoundly that reshapes and also fails to reshape gender dynamics in British society. It was so interesting when you brought that up, because it was almost as if It were an unintended consequence. Nobody had particularly thought through that that might happen, but it happened to such a great extent that it really had an enormous effect on those women, but also on the institution itself. It's very difficult to kind of prise apart the changes that happen sort of after the Second World War and kind of up until the 1980s, because we have the birth of the welfare state, and that's kind of dreamed up by Edwardian and Victorian men who view society as an ideal society as one of male full employment and women as sort of auxiliaries to men who help them, you know, who cook their dinners and birth babies and kind of keep the whole machinery going. But they don't need they don't need to be waged um, in the same way, but they're provided for under this kind of umbrella of, of male full employment. But part of creating kind of male full employment in the welfare state is having healthy bodies and that depends both on reproduction and also on on health care and because care is so much gendered female in the imagination it does very quickly lead to kind of rapidly expanding nursing care for example but also and this is what I think worth is so interesting on that actually as other professions expand and teaching is one of the kind of most important examples they also are increasingly imagined as caring roles and increasingly gendered female. And so the full employment male welfare state actually 
becomes one of, of female great employment. And that is so hard to unpick from, of course, the rise of feminism and also greater economic pressures on women to work because of course we don't we don't live in an economy now where a single kind of family wage as it was envisaged can support families often and so what the kind of what the dynamic is in terms of like the welfare state being this mass employer women pushing to enter the workforce because of the feminist movement and then also the economic pressure for women to be in the workforce all of those things kind of combine to really just reshape the dynamics of employment in Britain over the period that Worth is talking about. I'm really interested as well in in that psychological impact that you talk about. Not only are a lot of the people, frankly, simply healthy because of the NHS and also, as you say, free because they didn't have to you know, pay to go to the doctor, but that kind of psychological sort of almost boost that you say, that confidence that they get from the idea that they are, they are cared for and, they're, as you say, they're fed milk and orange juice, they're looked after. And as you say, there's a lot of confidence from that, from the grammar school children particularly maybe, but not only for them. And then the women go out to work. And then do you think that the confidence that arises from that and also from feminism is then knocked by the kind of deprofessionalization, as you say, of the professions actually, they're sort of seen as women's work, which is, you know, by definition, not as important as men's work? Yeah, I mean, Reading it kind of from a presentist perspective, it does feel like quite a cruel trip is played on women. So we have this generation who say, like Caroline Steedman says, that she feels like kind of cocky and and like she has a right to exist because of this kind of this upbringing of milk and orange juice. And then this confidence, as you say, that that women kind of gain through employment. But the kind of the cruel twist in, in Worth's tale is that as these professions become more and more feminized the pay gets worse and worse and also these sectors become increasingly kind of managerialized so in the 1980s we see in teaching and then kind of in nursing that managers are brought in from the private sector and the pay of these professions are kind of increasingly depressed and it is hard to sort of unpick those social changes because we also the whole kind of functioning of of the family economy changes And so we have a rise of sort of dual worker homes. But one of the things that enables the depression of women's wages, essentially, is this idea that women's work is less valuable and that somehow that love is the payment. And so this kind of logic of the initial founders of the welfare state, that men would go and work for money and women would sort of work for love at home, caring for the men and producing babies um, to be the workers of the future. It almost then takes up residence in the welfare state itself because you have women working in these crucial roles who are not being as well remunerated as their male kind of counterparts. And I think this sort of takes us on onto the other book, that there's an idea that, you know, we love these national institutions and that, that we believe that kind of care has an intrinsic value and, and therefore it doesn't need to be paid as much. Yes, the other book is a collection of essays, isn't it? It's called Posters, Protests and Prescriptions. And I was really interested in the way that you described how it opened a window onto this idea of the creation of something called the NHS worker, that people would identify not with what they actually did or the profession, but with their employer. They would think, I I am an NHS worker before I am a nurse or a phlebotomist or a doctor or whatever profession it might be. Mm. So this book is a kind of, it's a collection of historians all looking at different aspects of, of the sort of cultural history of the NHS, which seems so important 
because we do as a, as a nation so kind of identify with this institution. And the authors started writing this book before 2020 and they, and they do sort of reflect on the strangeness of how much sort of watching the pandemic unfold perhaps brought some things into sort of sharper relief for them. And I think this category of NHS worker was one of the things that we really saw in the pandemic become even more of an identity that people sort of in, identify with their employer and, and the mission of their employer perhaps more than the profession itself, that there's a sort of a measure of public esteem attached to that. But then also, and it's Jack Saunders who's who's writing this essay on, on the idea of the NHS worker, with that sort of idea of, of public esteem and a sense of duty towards the institution itself, it has historically been much more difficult for people working in the NHS to bargain collectively for working conditions, for example, because there is this sense of, of duty and, and of, of love even that sort of binds them to the institution and, and a deep sense of identification with their employer which we don't see in you know many industrial institutions elsewhere in, in Britain and of course we're kind of having to ask ourselves questions about that right now with doctors and nurses and paramedic strikes. There is always that idea, the conversation that surrounds industrial action, that somehow there is an, a huge emotional component to it, isn't there? Almost an idea of, uh, for those who oppose strikes, that they, that somehow those workers are betraying, you know, oaths that they took or promises that they they made. And ideas from people who support those strikes, which I think is, is well, I hope the majority of people who see it as just a case of just placing too much burden, but we still see it in terms of burden, don't we? There is just an emotional way of talking about these aspects that persists to this day. Yeah, I mean, it's something I think a lot about at the moment because I work in a university and so we're on and off strike a lot. And I've definitely sort of watched the way that we talk about striking evolve over the sort of five years that we've been engaged in our own kind of industrial dispute. And to begin with, there is this sort of sense, and I see this a lot now with, with nurses and doctors, that we were harming our students in some way. And the way that we countered that often was to say, well, no, this is actually, this is an act of love for the university. This is what we feel. We feel the university can be better. And actually the only way for us to kind of protect the institution is to sort of stand outside it and to highlight, you know, our working conditions and, and the fact that those are also people's learning conditions. But I watch now the way that doctors and nurses are having to use a lot of the identity that they have been given in terms of sort of heroes or loving their employment or being particular sort of embodiment of an ideal of care and I, I feel like often that is and Worth kind of talks about this in her book it's that particular gendered idea of care and, and the sort of love that we attach to that which has actually enabled them to be underpaid and so it feels sometimes strange to me that they then have to take that same rhetoric out onto the picket line and say this is also an act of love and sometimes I wonder if it's not enough to just say that actually this isn't a special category of work you know maybe all all workers deserve to be paid for their work whether it's pairing work or not and I, I think I say in the piece that the NHS in some ways has been loved to death and it feels it feels special. It feels wonderful that we have this National Health Service. And it almost feels like you have to you have to sort of 
pay a sort of an allegiance to that. Um, I'm at a point where lots of friends are having babies at the moment. And the thing that we all say is, oh, and of course, you know, we love the NHS and it's, you know, it's wonderful that we have the NHS. As you say, it's kind of extraordinary that they started writing it before the pandemic and the lockdowns. But it's that that thing that was very much highlighted, wasn't it, in, in the lockdowns, that afterwards the nurses said, it's great that you clapped for us, but but we need to have proper working conditions and pay, which seems like such a, a basic thing. But you have to sort of, they had to deal with the clapping first and the love. They had to sort of say thank you, which seems to be bound up in this position that they're carers and they're doing it out of love. They had to say thank you for that. But actually what we really need, which is what everybody needs, are decent working conditions and enough staff to cover our shifts and and enough money to live on and safety which yeah, of course was yeah. something yes of course during the pandemic that health workers and many other workers you know didn't get didn't feel that they got didn't get in some cases and and don't still that these are actually things that can become very very dangerous and risky if you don't have the proper conditions in place and i guess if you have that very emotional sort of language then it's easy to lose sight of that. It's a key part of the story that we keep seeing played out. And it must be very difficult as a historian and for the people putting these books together to see those mistakes continuing to be made, perhaps even intensifying. But I think it comes across very clearly that there was a sort of point at which the professionalisation of the NHS and of the welfare state came to be used almost sort of against it because where there's something that's a profession, there's something that can be cut away, isn't there? Yes, and I think the other part, of course, of Worth's story is privatisation. And she she looks at sort of how the NHS is professionalised, how women are professionalised within it, then how they're sort of managed. And as things are increasingly, increasingly managed, they're increasingly standardised, they can be increasingly outsourced. Um, and so... This story, and I think this is one of the great kind of narrative challenges of of modern Britain, the story of kind of feminism and feminization then becomes grafted on, I think, to the story of financialization and and neoliberalism and, and how it is that we have had this kind of privatization by stealth, not just of the NHS, but of education, the rise of academy schools, for example, if things can be managed, if things can be standardized, the state doesn't need to do as much in the way of supervision. So it's not just a kind of cultural history or, you know, it's an economic history and it it really connects to the way that we understand the reshaping of the state in the past 30 or 40 years. You make the point about both the books that there, there are sort of profoundly important missing pieces of the jigsaw that's come out of their approaches, which is largely to do with a greater degree of racial and ethnic diversity in both the population of Britain and, you know, by consequence, in the workforces of all these institutions. I mean, that seemed to me, you were saying that that was something that had really been missed in, in the books, that there's still work to be done in recognising that. Both books are aware of it, but it's it's a profound shame. I think particularly particularly with Worth's interviews, that all of her interviewees are white, because it's it's not at all representative when speaking about employment by the state, and particularly in the NHS. We know that the NHS was founded in 1948, which is the same year that the Windrush arrives. And so many of the first workers in the NHS are immigrant nurses, particularly from the Caribbean and later from South Asia. And there is brilliant work being done at the moment, particularly by something called the Young Historians Project, which 
is trying to do sort of more inclusive oral histories of the NHS. And so it's it's exciting that that's happening because I don't think we can write these kinds of histories really without, without those voices and also without those perspectives. And both books have a starting assumption, I think, of the welfare state and the NHS as a kind of, as a good thing. And we can absolutely be pro-social medicine and, and pro kind of welfare state while recognizing that that's just not going to be the starting experience for a lot of people. And when we're thinking about, you know, mass healthcare or social work or teaching, for a lot of people, for a lot of the history of, of modern Britain, those encounters have been ones of fear and discrimination or not of care, but of kind of, of neglect. Um, and, and those stories are so persistent. And of course, we saw... We saw those in the pandemic, both in terms of who was dying ultimately and, and who was staffing the institution and, and was being kind of denied protective equipment and, and which, you know, minorities and ethnicities were, were the first victims of, of COVID in the health service. It's a sort of correlation of that idea that we were talking about earlier of the generation who felt confident and who felt kind of loved and held by the NHS. But of course, that wasn't everybody's history as you say some of them were were neglected or not treated or you know neglected at school or though they feared it is it addressed at all in the books you say maybe not in worth because all of those interviewees are white but in the second one is there any recognition of that or not really I think that the book is very much written from the perspective of sort of pro-NHS activists um so it's very sort of concerned with well, with, with an activist history and with activism for the NHS and within the NHS and trying to sort of shape the way that the NHS functions. And elsewhere, there has been more written, particularly about black and minority staff in the NHS, um, but it's it's less spoken about in this volume. I think just a kind of broader point that goes back to your first point about treating the institution as a person and, and this idea that we have to protect the welfare state. One of the chapters in the second volume looks at the way that the welfare state is being described, um, and particularly the NHS is being described in the US and how it's being sort of portrayed as, as dangerous or socialist. And one of the kind of critiques that's drawn out from the US is about how do you how do you enforce national borders? How do you kind of protect this institution that everyone wants to be a part of from immigration, essentially? And I think that's a really, you know, that's a really important point um, to draw out because I, I wish that historians paid more attention to actually how tightly entwined welfareism has been with racism and exclusion, because there is this sense of, you know, an, a national institution and a, and a shared wealth to protect. And it has, it's very difficult to, to separate the welfare state from, from border control, border policing. Um, or, you know, to prize apart these different hands of the state, the sort of the caring hand of, of teaching and, and medicine from kind of policing or border enforcement. And I think anything that gets us actually further to telling those histories together is really important. And, and I sort of hope we see more of that work soon. Well, I guess that in many ways, that's why one of the kind of lasting images of the referendum, of the Brexit referendum debate was the, the money on the side of the bus, wasn't it? It was the, if we protect our sovereign nation, then we will have more money to spend on this jewel of it. Of course, you know, it didn't turn out to be true, but it was somehow tapping into some of that fear, I guess, wasn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I think in sort of 10, 15 years time, a book on protests and posters and prescriptions might look quite different. I, since the pandemic and since the sort of the branding of NHS kind of proliferating and also the sort of dilution of what that what that brand really means in terms of, you know, what, what is an NHS that is increasingly privatised. But I think at the moment we still see that, and it's one of the reasons it works, we still see the NHS as a sort of logo of, of inclusion, of care, of, of maybe kind of being associated with the left. And I wonder if in 15 years' time we'll actually need to think more about how that, how that image has enabled the right, perhaps even the far right, in their sort of critique. You mean the idea of inclusion, but inclusion... If it's not general inclusion, it's also exclusion. You make that point in your piece, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. That this idea of protecting the NHS is always about protecting from and disability rights activists have pointed out often on you know to, to uninterested audiences which lives it were that were kind of being put on hold or ignored to have this sort of, you know. So to protect the NHS, to protect resources and this idea that we have this kind of shared pot of, of resources, but that some people need to not make a claim on those resources, um, whether that's not by not entering the country or whether that's people working in the country paying enormous surcharges um, or if it's disabled people. When we say we want to protect the NHS, there is always an implication that we're protecting it from something or from someone. And I think I think that quite dangerous. Emily, that was so interesting. There was just one thing I wanted to to ask you before we let you go. I read a piece that you wrote about motherhood. It was a piece about reading Penelope Leach. It was such a wonderful piece. Oh, thank you. I just found it so, so moving and so interesting. It was a particular line that struck me. You know, one of the things that you say about bringing up children is, there is no product, the labour disappears. And you're talking about the kind of repetitive business of, you know, if a child's nappy has changed, then it will get wet again and a child will be hungry again. But I guess it goes too for that kind of idea of care and of the feminization of care that we can't point to a product, even though we know there is a product, it's well and healthy people or well and healthy and loved children in the case of, of parenting. But it is that idea that, that there just isn't something you can sell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that kind of gets, gets to the whole issue of undervaluing different kinds of work. We can't point to the outcome of care work. And, and sometimes, you know, the outcome of care work is, is not going to be a healthy person sometimes it, it could be decline it could be death there is no product as you know the, the labor disappears and that's that's so different from these professions gendered male it's so different from you know, the era in which the NHS was founded was mass production it was steel industry and coal coming out of the ground and you know railway tracks and fast trains and all of these things that were so obviously something and for all of that to go on the nappies have to be changed and the meals have to be served and the plates have to be washed again and it the labor is obliterated and and that's almost the point because of that it's always it, it can be swept aside it can be undervalued it can be ignored well thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it i mean you make the point very eloquently in the piece and talking to you here today that there are so many strands to disentangle but i think we've we've made a start on disentangling some of them and we really thank you for for helping us to do that 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. Still to come on the show, the many lives of mystery writer Patricia Highsmith. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. There is an unusual new film out, a documentary all about Patricia Highsmith called Loving Highsmith. It's about her life, to some extent her work, and also her loves. It is written and directed by the Swiss filmmaker Eva Vitilla, and it looks like a dreamy, impressionistic piece, though its subject being who she is, the voiceover is unsettling from the outset. Whether they're the words of Highsmith herself, from interviews or from her novels. The film is narrated by the wonderful actor Gwendolyn Christie and it often pulls you up short. And we're very lucky that we have a very special guest star who reviewed it brilliantly for us in this week's TLS. Dear listeners, it's none other than Alex Clark. Alex, many thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be <laughs> You had <here>. no choice. <laughs> I had absolutely no choice. <laughs> I'm slightly frightened to be being asked questions. (laughs) Don't be frightened. It's all fine. might turn out to be terrible at being asked questions. (laughs) Certainly not. I was really delighted, though, Lucy, when you asked me to review this film. But let's just take a sneak peek in the commissioning process. Why did you ask me? Uh, Because I thought it would be a brilliant idea. And I checked with a fiction editor and he said, yes, what a brilliant idea. 
So that's how it worked. <laughs> I've written about Highsmith before for the TLS and I, I'm yeah. incredibly interested in her work. So it was a, a dream commission. Thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you. Now we should stop, you know, bigging each other up. And I'm going to actually ask you about the film. Can you tell us first about that great line that you pull out of the film that really stayed with me? that Highsmith wrote in her notebook that you quote for us. I will indeed. In fact, it's where I started the piece. It's always really nice to get a quote to start the piece, partly because you feel like you've actually started writing then and you've, you haven't at all. But oh. I thought this is, I can't get past this quote. She said, we must think of ourselves as a fertile land on which to draw. Okay, so far, so, you know, so what a writer might say. Mm -hmm. But then it goes on. And if we do not, we go rotten like an unmilked cow. And I just thought that was such an unpleasant, unsettling and disturbing image. I started yeah. to think about, you know, what that actually meant, that you have all this stuff inside you that will somehow sort of curdle inside your body and your psyche and will poison you. And I thought that, you know, maybe a, maybe a lot of writers feel like that at some level, but would anybody very easily express it like that? Well... That's why she's Patricia Highsmith, I think, because she did express it like that. And it's such a horrible line, but it stays with you. And the idea, you know, somebody else might think that you are full of promise and ideas. And do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be negative at all. But the idea that she thinks that you will go rotten, not that, do cows go rotten? I mean, I don't think they do. I don't know. It seemed to me that one of, one of the quotes that sat oddly with the sort of visual beauty of the film, does that make sense? Well, absolutely. There's an awful lot of, of, you know, moving images, still images, little clips from films, footage from the era, whichever era it is that is being described at the moment. It all looks, it's a visual treat. And then you also have the words from the many, many letters and notebooks and diaries that she created throughout her life. I mean, she kept notebooks on the go from a young age all through her life. And they sort of write themselves across the screen in beautiful flowing script. And then you have the actor Gwendolyn Christie reading them out. And so there's this great impression of sort of fecundity and beauty. And then these very dark things being said, not only by her, but by some of the interviewees as well. Mm. Gwendolyn Christie, she does a beautiful job and she's got she's got a lovely voice, but she says them almost I felt like almost too gently, so they creep up on you. There's one bit when she's really near the beginning when she's quoting a line from one of Highsmith's novels and it's something like, his fingers closed over her throat, but it was too tight for her to scream or something. But she says it rather beautifully. Yes, it's from Strangers on a Train, isn't it? It's the murder in Strangers on a Train. And I think you see the clip from the film. The film yeah. In a way, very different from the book, I found, although equally the Hitchcock film, equally arresting in a different kind of way but you see that moment of extreme and horrible and dispassionate violence I mean the whole point of that plot you know where two strangers on a train swap murders need in order to make sure that they can't be caught they can't be linked to the person that they've murdered and of course what that means is that then at the moment of the kind of psychopathic Killing. They are completely divorced from that person. They don't actually have an emotional attachment mm. to that person. So it's it's so chilling. I mean, I, I, that actually makes it sound like it's less chilling if you do have an emotional attachment to those, which of course it isn't. But <laughs> no, there no. is, you know, she is illustrating something about that disconnect between actions and feelings 
Mm. And it actually, in that bit that you're saying, you can see him doing it because, as you say, there's a bit from the film. But when there are, as we were saying the, the other times, when there are, you know, pictures of her or sort of sl the slow images of her walking around or something and Gwendolyn Christie is narrating things from her mm. book, I found that more shocking because you couldn't see it and it just took you a beat to register what she was saying. And as I say, there was there was that disjunction between this very cinematographic, it's often in black and white, isn't it? Yes. Rather kind of auteurish bit of film. Yes, and you also get caught up, don't you, in the kind of, you know, the period piece of it. You're also looking at the settings and her clothes and because she was always on the move. You know, she was born in Texas, thereby hangs another part of the story. Then she goes to New York and then she strikes out for Europe. So you have all of these different settings, various different time places. You even have a sort of particularly bucolic piece where she goes to live with a girlfriend for a few months in rural Pennsylvania and you get the most beautiful, you know, sort of lanes full of flowers and foliage and trees and sunshine and dapple and lots and lots of flying birds on there going across lake lands. And then these, mm. when we're having the uh, the Texan childhood illustrated to us, lots of, of rodeo footage, slowed down rodeo footage. Well, let's talk about Texas because the film as well, it generally, you said it looks into her life, doesn't it, rather than her mm. work, especially her love life. Yes. It interviews family members and they're a bit, they're a bit of a, a surprise, aren't they? Especially the Texan family members. I thought they were such a surprise. So there's the, you're suddenly in the house of these three Texans. They're terribly cheerful and they're clearly pleased to be making this film and they have a kind of sideways connection to her, I think. You're not always entirely sure how they're related to one another. But they are generations of the family and they're talking about her. I mean, they're very damning, I think, as you would be about her relationship with her mother. There's a moment, isn't there, where one of them says, if you'd put these two people in the room, her and her mother, who abandoned her essentially for the first six years of her life, having divorced Highsmith's father while she, was, she hadn't yet been born and then remarried. She went to New York. She left her daughter in the care of her mother, Patricia Highsmith's grandmother. And... She said, if you put these two people in the room, there would be nothing to say that they were mother and daughter, not in the sense of them resembling or not one another, but there was no connection between them. And she just mm. didn't think that Patricia Highsmith's mother ever wanted to be a mother and clearly didn't really bother herself much with being one. Mm -hmm. There's a good moment there when you say they're being, there's also that kind of rather incongruous cheerfulness. And they say that I think they ask whether she was a typical Texan young girl when she was yes, growing it's up. Yes, right. well, they actually say, was she a typical Texan woman? And you think, well, you know, I can answer that. I mean, no, clearly not. <laughs> Maybe but, not. I mean, really, I don't think so. But they kind of burst into this sort of tremendous laughter. And, and the youngest of these three relatives, is a woman in, in middle age, I guess, says, my grandmother slept in a push-up bra and a wig the entire time she and my grandfather were married. And they had, you know, they had this completely different sort of life. And so clearly Patricia Highsmith was not a person who was ever going to do that. And there's also that moment when they reveal that she'd had a clandestine affair with somebody to whom, a woman to whom she was, albeit distantly related. And they just, they, they can't believe it. I mean, they are being given this well, what they treat as a sort of extraordinary piece of family news and almost gossip. I mean, they're not scandalised by it, but they're very, very surprised. They just they just sit there going, no, no way, mm. that can't be true. It also brings to light other people, doesn't it? And you said, actually, that they're, they're interviewed because of their relation 
to Patricia Highsmith, but actually they're fascinating people in their own right, some of them. Yes, they really are. There are three lovers, and I think it's, you know, important to say that, you know, they were three of many lovers. And actually one one thing that looking at this film made me do was go back to Andrew Wilson's fantastic biography, Beautiful Shadow. And, you know, the loves of Patricia Highsmith, many of them people that she couldn't possibly have hoped to attain, some people who turned their back on her, some people she turned her back on them. I mean, her love life was complicated. We should say her erotic life, her romantic life was complicated and very, very highly populated. So, Mm. you know, these three people, are they're very different from one another. And they do, I think, represent these different Faces of the way that she interacted with her lovers and the people that she was having relationships with. But they were very interesting in their own right. And I think I said in the piece, there's a woman called Mary Jane Meeker. She, in fact, was the woman who who Highsmith lived with in this Pennsylvanian rural idyll. And she died at the end of last year. And she's, I suppose, fairly elderly in this film. And she just had such an exceptional way of looking at the camera, her kind of impassive sort of face and then she would say these extraordinary things one of which was that she she thought when she first met Patricia Highsmith she thought she was quite nice looking quite sort of smart and well turned out and nice looking she said this was a surprise to her because most writers she said when you meet them they look pretty seedy and then she said myself included so she <laughs> she was this a writer who was really a, a leading light in the sort of lesbian pulp fiction world. She published numerous novels under a huge variety of pseudonyms, one of which was Vin Packer. And it's just tremendously interesting, but a very harrowing moment, really, when she describes the fact that Highsmith went to see doctors, to see whether essentially she could be cured of lesbianism. And then she says, very movingly, she says, you know, she tried. She did try, she says. There's a a real difference in her inflection. She changes. She she did try. But then we all tried, myself included. We all tried, but no luck. So there was this sense of people using pseudonyms, as of course Patricia Highsmith did with her novel, The Price of Salt, which was Carol and which she didn't she didn't claim ownership until much, much later in her career and in her life. There was a sense of a real underground network of writers who simply weren't allowed to write what they wanted to write. She called them girls mm. books, her girls books. And she mm. she didn't she wrote very much about men. Yeah. It's funny because the girls' books, if we call them that, are now the ones which are being made into films and sort of studied more, aren't they, wouldn't you say? Yes, there was a lovely moment in the film where she's being interviewed. I loved, by the way, seeing a glimpse of Mavis Nicholson interviewing her at one point. But mm. a bit later in the film, she's being interviewed by Sarah Dunant, who's asking her about, about Carol. And she's saying that it was unusual because it had a happy ending. And, and Highsmith, who described being interviewed as a profound indignity, and that she had to submit to from time to time. And she's, I know, she's very sort of um, cagey in interviews and her face is like a kind of extraordinary mask. And then it suddenly breaks at the moment when Sarah Dunant says, for a long time, we we don't know that there's going to be a happy ending. In fact, we don't think there is going to be a happy ending to Carol. And 
it was such an interesting moment. Highsmith's face kind of breaks suddenly into a smile that looked to me almost like a sort of girlish kind of glee. And I wasn't sure what it was. I wasn't sure whether she was just being encouraging, whether it's genuinely amused that somebody had worked this out. Or it felt perhaps a little bit more like she felt that somebody was on the wavelength. They got her great sort of trick of the book, which was to make you think it was going to be unhappy and then it would be happy. Mm, mm. I, I may be completely wrong in saying this, but I'm going to boldly say it anyway. Are all her books made into films? An incredibly high rate, aren't they? An incredibly high rate. Strangers on a Train, of course, Carol, of course, and even more, of course, the Ripley. Towns of Mr. Ripley, yeah. yeah. Novels, of course. And we do see a, a clip from that. And we see a, an interesting moment, actually, when a you know, major theme of the, the book is picked up as homoeroticism between Tom and Dickie. And we see Tom Ripley dancing around his praise room, his hotel room, trying to dress up in his clothes and trying to be him, trying to kind of somehow manifests some of the glamour and then he is he is surprised in the act and it's a very interesting moment but they put that under the the spotlight really the idea that that she was trying to write about this idea of disguised sexuality throughout her books and I I think she was. Mm. You say that it has a kind of shade of the the sort of tragic or the romantic in its idea of her the film and it's not that that's not true, because she did, as you say, she had a very difficult childhood and she faced lots of difficulties. I mean, not least not being able to be frank about who she was. But there were also unpleasant sides to her, especially later on, weren't there? Which are, they glossed over, is that fair to say? They are. The fact that she became, well, actually, this is, I suppose, the line that the film takes, that she became increasingly bigoted and prejudiced and and unwilling to express that particularly anti-semitism racism and the line I guess it takes is that somehow this was a sort of throwback to aspects of her upbringing that came to the fore later in life and I think that in a sense that would require further exploration for you to be fully convinced by it that it was just a sort of late life manifestation rather than you know something that clearly views that she had at least at some part of her mind throughout her life but yes that's true mm. and that gets very very uh, small I mean you know the focus is on her personal life very definitely it's not even so very much on her work it really is on this idea of her as a ported lover in lots of cases as a chaser of love, but as somebody who couldn't succeed, but absolutely to to kind of downplay those other aspects of the way that she thought and felt is not entirely satisfactory to say the least. I read about the something about the filmmaker making the film because she's Swiss, the filmmaker. That's right. And it turns out that she used to go on holiday in the town where Patricia Highsmith lived, I think, in her later life. And heard, is this right? She sort of heard about her. She never met her, but she'd heard a sort of story or a legend of this reclusive writer who nobody ever saw, who was really famous, but kept herself to herself. And then much later, she came back to the idea and discovered who she was and her work and all of that. So there is a there's a romance there, isn't there? Oh, for sure. And and in a way, I mean, she says at the very beginning, she says, I fell in love with her. And mm. I don't know that one, one would entirely say that was the ideal position <laughs> for a filmmaker or a critic of any sort to be 
occupying with regard to their subject. But of course, it does mean that this is a very felt film as well. And I think that's the most sort of successful aspect of it. And I think, you know, that there is the fascinating interlude where she's in Berlin, really at the the height of Berlin nightlife or one of the heights of Berlin nightlife. And she takes to it with extraordinary zeal and zest and falls wildly in love with an actor called Taber Blumenschein. And that does turn out to be dreadfully, dreadfully unhappy in her life. And again, I went back to the biography and read that part of it, the whole thing. I mean, it was just a pure misery to her because she was essentially with someone who didn't really want to be with anybody, exclusively with anybody. But I think also it's interesting, isn't it? When you think about somebody being reclusive, it is easy to think of it as being a sort of response to, you know, unhappinesses in love or or other kinds of relationship. And I, I guess there is a sense in which that's true but it was also her natural state to a certain extent she did want to write she did always keep her desk and typewriter in her bedroom you know she always had a desk in any bedroom wherever she was she clearly felt that writing was the most important thing that she did and you know we can't really argue with that can we (laughs) I don't think we can I'm not even going to try Alex thank you very much for joining us (laughs) thank you for having me it's been a pleasure Lucy That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Emily Bourne and to me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. <laughs>